Hi everyone and welcome back to Cup of Tea with Rick G and today we're with one of our preferred partners from the HMO and Property Community Group. We've got Joel White with us this morning from Ramsey White. Good morning Joel. Hi Rick, good morning, thank you for having me. You're absolutely welcome. So welcome to the studio. Um, So a part of what we do folks, the people that are listening to this on the podcast, is that we have a preferred partner scheme on our Facebook community, which is the HMO and Property Community Group. And part of the preferred partner scheme, um, we have lots of people that we work with and have worked with ourselves individually and we recommend them to our community. So what we're doing at the moment is we're bringing people into the studio so they can talk a little bit more about their business and their offerings and then it will give everyone that's listening and watching the opportunity to contact you directly so joel you are from ramsey white yep. or is it ramsey and white ramsey and white okay sorry yep. gotta get the branding right yep. um so you are mortgage specialists yep. and brokers so i'm gonna go right back to the beginning really so yep. w- how did it all start for you yeah uh, what's your background and what led you to becoming a mortgage broker yeah, so I left school, joined the British Army. I was in the Queen's Guards, Coldstream Guards, um, for a few years. Is Coldstream, are they the ones that stand outside Buckingham Palace? Yeah, like the Bears game. Like when they shout, move away from the Coldstream yeah, Guards. that's right. <laughs> the colour, that sort of thing. So I joined really young, 17 years old. Um, great experience, learnt a lot in the Army. So did you join as a junior leader, junior soldier? Because your time doesn't start, does it, in the Army until you're 18? Until you're 18, yeah. So okay. I, I turned 18 at the end of my training. Right. So you had to give a bit of time to the Queen? Six months at Catrick, and then I was based in Chelsea Barracks, which is now, um, I think, flats now. So, yeah, I was based in there for a few years. And then after that, um, I decided to go to university in Cardiff, and I was studying in Cardiff. And one of the guys I was living with, I I lived in a student kind of HMO-style house. Uh, There was five of us in there, and we were all studying in Cardiff. And one of the guys didn't like the course, so he dropped out, but needed a job, so become... Uh, an estate agent he got offered a job via one of the guys he played rugby with via an estate agent and every day he was coming home and complaining about it um, after work of investors after work of landlords and making me do all these viewings after get offers and he really didn't like it but I quite liked the sound of it so I was like okay I, I want to look more into that so I looked into estate agency and I always had an interest in property but I never knew how to get into property I thought you needed quite a lot of money so Actually, a state agency was a route to learn a bit more about the property market, how it works, um, and get a better understanding. So, so was it hard to get a job as an estate agent, or was it something you just walked straight into? Uh, what I found is a lot of estate agents, um, actually, not all like maybe needed jobs, or you know, didn't, didn't always want to be there. Just had like admin backgrounds, and they felt like maybe sales background. They fell into a state agency. There's only a few people I really worked with in the estate agency market that actually really wanted to be a estate agent. Quite so the word estate agent. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm not being, I'm not going to patronise people yeah, here, does. but does that just mean showing people around houses? I mean, is that what it was for you? Yeah, effectively. So I started as a, a junior lettings negotiator and sales negotiator. My role was to speak to uh, potential tenants or buyers and then effectively booking viewings for on behalf of our vendors and show them around the property let them know about the property the location what the vendor position was and hopefully help them find their next property um, but at that point I really enjoyed working with investors so I, I had like a handful of investors that would come in I showed them lots of potential properties that would uh, work well as an investment and I really clicked with these types of kind of potential buyers um, and I, I enjoyed their kind of mentality and their own entrepreneurial spirit and what they were creating and building and their drive and I thought you know I want to be involved in property so I worked for a corporate and uh, an independent estate agent on my journey so I run a, I run a branch for a corporate estate agent and at the time I bought a buy to let property and I got recommended a mortgage advisor and the mortgage advisor was really old school you know slip back hair still smoking in his office and he was uh like said leave it to me i'll sort your mortgage out and in hindsight i could have had a better product better service he didn't really understand my strategy what i was looking to do i was looking at the kind of buy refurb refinance type model but what it made me realize is actually there was a gap in my knowledge especially from using leverage or the bank's money because i knew how to find the property i knew how to negotiate with the vendors i knew how to market the property i knew how to find tenants um, but I didn't actually understand fully the finance uh, side of things. So at the time, the company I worked for were training mortgage advisors. So um, 
I asked to be trained as a mortgage advisor. They let me for the branch for the for the company I worked for, yeah. which they thought was alien because I was a branch manager at that point. So I am uh, running a team of of uh, sales negotiators, letting letting negotiators, and then I have a mortgage advisor. And as a branch manager, you're paid on the whole branch. <laughs> The mortgage advisors are paid only on what they do. So right. the area director was like, well, why would you want to do that? You're almost like demoting yourself. And I was like, well, I've got a bigger picture, a bigger plan. And that kind of fits in with it. And, and learning and progression was really important to me. And I, I thought I reached kind of what I wanted to in a state agency, running a branch, turn the branch around. So how long did you run the branch for? What 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 period of time was that? Over, over that branch. I ran that branch for 12 months and it was underperforming, like massively underperforming. And no one really wanted to run the branch. And I was an, like a sales negotiator at the time. Yep. So they offered me the opportunity to run the branch. And I thought I can't do any worse than what they previously done. And it was a, and it was a big task and I learned a lot. Um, you know, I had to get rid of some people, bring on new people, train, recruit, um, motivate, inspire. You know, we, as soon as I got, in, got into that branch, I was fighting fires. You know, a lot of disappointed vendors, upset landlords, you know, with this, the previous service. So it's like, okay, how do we turn this around? you know, add value in the branch and ultimately make it profitable. Because I wanted to be in property, I just wanted I just wanted to keep on learning and be around people that are in that space. So um, being a mortgage advisor, I thought would connect me more with uh, the landlords, investors, understand that finance side of things. And then that way I could apply that to my own kind of property stuff. Um, they thought it was alien, but I pushed through. I was uh, tenacious with kind of what I wanted to do and they, they ultimately allowed me to do it. But they then put me in another branch that was underperforming as a mortgage advisor. So it was like, okay, here we go again. And then I was uh, yeah, just, just every day turning up, making sure I could add value in that branch. And what worked really well is because I had the estate industry experience and now I've got the mortgage uh, knowledge, advice, I could. I really understood where the estate agents were coming from, or the lettings agents, and and really what people wanted to achieve. Um, when, like, I could understand, you know, what what they were looking for, and and I could bring that into my conversations with them, not only just about the finance. So that was good. It was really. Uh, uh, I found it um, a great experience helping first time buyers, home movers, secure the right finance for their their next home. But what I really enjoyed is the landlords coming in, or the the property investors coming in, and looking at deals and going, right, these are the people I want to be working with. But at the time, the estate agent had a panel of lenders, so I could only own, offer them certain products. Mm. Um, so it was like one step more than a bank. You know, the bank's only got their own products. This estate agent said we had like 12 lenders on panel. So I couldn't help developers or really HMO investors or people buying for a limited company. And at the time, there's a lot of tax changes or they were being phased in. Um, and I said to my manager at the time, we need to be looking at limited company lenders because a lot of landlords are going to start putting their portfolios or buying uh, or acquiring properties through uh, limited companies. And her reply was, that's not a market we're in. We don't want, that's too much work for us. There's a lot of paperwork. We don't want to deal with it. I thought we we're going to miss a massive opportunity. And they're actually the people I want to work with. So I decided to move away from the estate agency and into a commercial brokerage, which specifically focused on working with property investors and that's kind of really where I learned my trade. And I got the opportunity to travel up and down the country, meet, you know, buy to let landlords, HMO landlords, service, co- service accommodation operators, uh, small developers and um, overseas investors, foreign nationals, and really understood kind of what they wanted from the market. And then I got to a certain point where I was like, well, I'm going to do this myself. So do, to do what you do, mm-hmm. I'm right in saying you've got to be, uh, you've got to be registered, You've got to be, um, you've got to be trained properly. So you did all of that with the company you were working for. Yeah. So I worked for the estate agency. I got qualified. Yeah. So you can either be CMAP qualified or. Is that CFM. what we say when about we talk about you've got to be regulated? Um, yeah. So is that the what qualifications you need to become regulated as a broker? So if you're doing like residential, um, if you're advising on residential regulated mortgages, then you need CMAP. Okay. Got CMAP qualification or CF1, CF6, which is the equivalent of CMAP. And does that stay with you forever, Joel? Or is it something you have to renew? Yeah, so effectively it does um, stay with you forever. But you are constantly, your cases are reviewed. So you'll have either a network behind you or the FCA uh, will come in and check cases and files and make sure that you are uh, given advice and, and compliant in, in that process. So right. it's quite strict. There's an unregulated market as well. So investments, bridging, development, where you don't actually have to be qualified. You need the right contacts, you need the right experience. I find that 
having that qualification and the foundations from the residential has really helped me apply good practice in the unregulated market as well. Okay. All right. Okay. So sorry to interrupt there. Okay. So, so moving forward then, yeah. so you got your qualifications. Yeah. Um, Take us from there. Yeah, so got the qualifications, moved into a commercial brokerage, uh, thrived in that commercial brokerage, loved working with the property investors, the developers, and really uh, kind of gained a lot of experience and knowledge in that commercial market. And um, the goal was to always have my own business, uh, but I just wanted to keep on learning. So I got to a place where I felt actually it's the right time for me. So in August 2018, I decided to set up Ramsey and White. And Rams in White specifically is a specialist mortgage brokerage set up solely for property investors. So we work with buy-to-let landlords, HMO landlords, service accommodation operators, uh, developers, commercial developers, um, portfolio landlords looking to expand foreign nationals and expats who are looking to acquire assets here in the UK. Okay, so you've your company Rams in White now has been going for just over a year and a half. Yeah, fifteen months. Fifteen now. months or so. Uh, I know you're doing some great things. Mm-hmm. You're building a really great reputation within the industry. Yeah. I know you're building up a massive customer base. Yeah. How hard was it, Joel, to start this company up from scratch? Yeah. Because I'm right in saying that there's an awful lot of competition, yeah. and there's competition in pretty much everything we do. Yeah. You know, it's everywhere. Yeah. How did you How did you counter that? I mean, competition, there is a lot of competition. I think there's about 10,000 brokers across the UK. Wow, okay. So the first thing for me was, um, let's not try and do everything. Let's not do... Was it a one-man band? Was it just you? Yeah, so yep. I set up in my bedroom, my spare yep. bedroom in, in my house and um, had my laptop and built a website and it was kind of like, right, let's make this happen. So um, I know there's a lot of competition. So you can go out and be broad brush and try and do everything and then you only, you're not, you only might, might catch a small percentage of the market but where I had a passion for property investors I was like well I want to be within the property investor community and working with them and helping them fund their deals and build their portfolios because if I can help them do that and be successful then ultimately my business will be successful and a lot of our clients say that you know Ramsey and White is an extension of their property business from a finance point point of view maybe minus the accounts but that's the way they look at us and that's the way we treat it and we want to make sure that we do put the right funding in place so they can uh, build momentum and, and, and grow their, sure. their business. Yeah. So, so how, how did you start so, then? So Yeah, so um, basically set up as a one-man band and it was, there's two things, right? White space in the diary and uh, people knowing who you are. So I just looked at my diary and was like, how can I feel that as much as possible and how can I let as many people know about me as possible? So it was... But there's one thing filling the space, right? And, then, yeah. and another thing filling it with the right appointments, isn't there? Yeah, because you can spend all of your time having coffee meetings yeah, of course. And, and they don't turn into anything. So yeah. um, how, how did you do that? How did you make sure that that white space was filled with money-making activities? I think it's about aligning yourself with the right people who are active in the market already, who've got a good reputation who are ethical that's why it's so important for us to align ourselves with people like yourself so um i just looked who was active in the market who's got a good reputation who needs help and how can we solve that problem from a finance point of view and how did you bring that alignment together joel i mean obviously i know that you know the stuff that we do but how did you align with everybody else was it a case of just phoning them up and saying hey that's coffee so um when I decided that I was going to go out and do this, I got asked a lot of questions, you know, what's your plan, where are you going, who are you going to connect with? And I, at that point, I got invited to uh, an event in London to do a presentation on commercial finance, HMO finance and commercial valuations. So that was in the Shard in London. So, so the Gherkin in London. So it was like quite exclusive. And I thought, right, that, it just happened to fall at the same time I was launching my company. So I went there and presented this presentation and there was a lot of people there who were from various kind of property circles across the UK who picked up on what I was doing. They fed that back to their networks. And then I had the phone started ringing off the back of that. Awesome. So great feeling. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was just, okay. And that, do, do you remember the first deal you got over the line? I'm sure you do. Yeah. Yeah. And the first commission check you got. Yeah. Well, the, the first one we did was 32 pounds. Awesome. The, the fee was 32 pound. And how uh, come it was just 32 pounds? It was a small, small deal. <laughs> sure. Really small. Um, yeah, I remember all the deals we do. I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of what, what I've created and the team I've got around me now. Uh, in the last 15 months, we submitted now uh, just over 40 million in mortgage applications. Yeah, that's good. There's a team is, there's seven of us. Um, there's two more. So I'm guessing you're not 
in your back bedroom anymore? <laughs> so I started it in my bedroom, uh, kept it lean, um, did all the admin myself, case management. So I was driving up and down the country, meeting clients, going to networking events, put myself out there, social media. And then um, when a case come in, I'd do it, do the admin, make sure I give the good service to the clients. Communication's key. So always on the phone. They could call me seven days a week. You know, on a Sunday, Saturday, I didn't mind. I was just determined to make the business success. And I yeah. think that's what separated me from a lot of other brokers who may switch off after five o'clock or when that, you know, they go home, that's it, home time, which is fair enough. But for me, it was kind of... But when you're starting a business, you've got to put yourself out there, haven't you? You've got to do yeah. that, that little bit extra. Yeah. You've got to go that extra mile. Yeah. And then when you start to become established, then you can start putting the, you know, the, well, not boundaries, because I don't think businesses should always have boundaries, but you've got to have a cutoff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, fortunately, I love what I do. So if someone calls me on a Sunday and said, Joe, I've got this issue, I need to get it resolved by Monday morning, then that's no problem. I want to help them. I want to add that value yeah. within their business. And ultimately, it helps my business grow and my reputation grows in a positive way off the back of that. Mm -hmm. So I was just prepared to do whatever it takes to make the business. It's being, um, it's being available, isn't it? That's yeah. one of the big things. And mm -hmm. certainly for my portfolio and the people that we deal with, being available is a huge thing. You know, because if we need uh, specific advice, yeah. specialist advice, we need it, we kind of need it straight away, you know, because yeah. sometimes deals don't stick around for very long. Absolutely. There's a lot of competition in the market, yeah. especially when buying, and you need to kind of work out, does this deal stack? Can I get the right finance? How would that work? Especially if you're being quite creative as well. Yeah. So, Joel, that brings me on nicely then to, <clears throat> we spoke about competition yeah. and busy markets. Yeah. What would you say makes you and your company stand out above everybody else because yeah. you know for everyone that's listening to this i mean most people not everyone but most people will be in the property mm -hmm. communities yeah. and they'll know that there's a lot of people out there certainly number one touting for business because that happens it's on linkedin it's on yeah. facebook all the time mm -hmm. and you know who do they go to you know which which person yeah. stands out yeah. in, in in that huge crowd yeah i think um for me success isn't just how much money we generate you know, that's just, that's a benchmark of how well the business is doing. But success for me is seeing others do well. And I really buy into that. And I, I really believe in that. And that's what drives me. So within the team, I'm always challenging them. I'm always motivating and I'm always training them to try and push them forward. And ultimately, if they're willing to, to have the same approach to, to being successful and helping the company and helping each other and then treating the clients with the same respect and understanding and commitment to deliver a good job then ultimately we we kind of stand out on top mm -hmm. I feel we get some really good feedback so everyone in my team is ridiculously hard working I don't you know I lead from the front like I'm here today I was in London uh, yesterday I'm in London on Friday Do you know, I live in South Wales so um we work so hard 24 7 seven days a week we are on it so everyone in the team from the administrators to the case managers to the advisors um work hard very very hard and they're fully committed to getting the deal done for the client Joel, you know what i do see because i've been you know been around for yeah. a little while yeah and and i see um sometimes there's a pattern that evolves and new people enter the market in in skills yeah. and they go out networking, they they become at the top of their game and then they become really, really busy. Yeah. And then I worry mm -hmm. um, that the customer service level then at that point yeah. is harder to keep. Yeah. It's harder to keep that personal one-to-one -one level. Yeah. Have you kind of planned for that? Because you are getting busy, which is great. And I know that you're very customer focused. Mm -hmm. But what happens when you get to that point where, you know, do you cut off? Do you say we don't take any more clients mm -hmm. or what? what what do you do? What's your plan? So um, I think you can learn from your own mistakes, but you can learn from other mistakes as well. So and I've worked in uh, various other companies where we grew quite quickly. We had a big client base and communication maybe lacked because we just was focused on new business all the time. So quite early on in setting up Ramsey and why I, I appointed a non-executive um, gentleman is in his fifties, got a very successful business worth over 10 million, got uh, managers around 200 people but is very attentive to everyone in that company and the clients. And we've got a plan in place. And I think the way that we keep uh, the service levels high is by having the right people in place to support that, but also listening to our clients' feedback. So if a client said, look, I've tried calling you a couple of times today and we haven't got back to them, then we need to go, okay, well, what's going in the office? Why are we busy? How can we make sure that we put that right? So what we've got at Ramsey and White and what we're building is an admin hub so the admin hub are there Monday to Friday, nine to five. So you've got qualified 
Jordan Price, who's the head of the admin hub, is a qualified mortgage advisor, but he's not on the road. So he's not on the road networking, coming to events like this. He's there speaking to lenders, speaking to solicitors, speaking to accountants, speaking to estate agents, updating the clients and making sure they are informed throughout the process. So you've effectively, at Ramsey and White, you don't have just a mortgage advisor, but you have an administrator case manager who's dedicated to your, to your file. So you can either, like I'm in here now with my phone's off, but so that means someone in the office will pick up the call, someone like Jordan or Lindsay uh, or Dean, and they'll be able to answer that query. So then we have team meetings to discuss the cases to make sure that we know what's going on within our business and who we need to speak to and who we need to get back to. So as we grow, it's just about having the right level of staff who are in there, who are fully trained, who understand our ethoses and who understand our commitments to our clients and can demonstrate that they can deliver good customer service. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> Thanks for that. So let's talk about mortgages. Yeah. So I'm going to give a couple of scenarios here now. So I'm a new investor yeah. and I'm all starry eyed. Yeah. And I've been on a couple of courses yeah. and I know that I can, um, I'm going to leave my job. You know what? Because I've seen five people on yeah. that stage and they've all said they've left their job yeah. within a day mm -hmm. of investing in property. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm saying this tongue in cheek. Yeah. So advice for new investors is where I'm coming from here. So um, I've got my own point of view on a lot of this, but I wanted to know what your thoughts were on, first of all, should I give up my job because I want to go into property full-time? How yeah. would that make me look to a lender yeah. without having a full-time income? I think property is a great vehicle to be financially stable and another income stream. So you've got to ask yourself, why are you getting into property? What, why are you doing this? What's important to you? And if you want to leave your job and have more time with your family and friends and or maybe go traveling or whatnot, then... That's great. But how would that make me look desirable yeah. to a lender? Am I yeah, still so going to get a mortgage? If you, every, the majority of lenders want you to be, have some level of income. So some lenders have, if you're looking at buy to let investments, right, or HMOs, some lenders will want you to have a minimum income to de demonstrate that you can repay any monthly payments if there's a void period. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that income, then that puts them at risk. So they don't, they want to de-risk the deal. So if you've got income coming in from an employment or self-employed, you need to demonstrate that. If you don't have that, no income at all, um, then there will be concerns that if the, the the tenant doesn't pay the rent, how will you afford to pay So my mortgage? scenario is now then, so this is um, obviously, it's not real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to give up my job um, because I've seen a load of other people do it on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, I haven't got a property yet. Yeah. I then find one because I've been looking on Rightmove and it's a great deal. And I, um, I put an offering yeah. and it's been accepted. Now I've got the deposit because that's cool because I've been saving up. Yeah. But I haven't got any property experience. Mm -hmm. I don't have any portfolio right now. Yeah. So I don't have any tenants. I've literally got nothing and I've just yeah. given up my job. Can I still get a mortgage for that property? Do you own a residential? I own my own house. Do you have a partner? That yes. Owns money? Um, yes. Okay. So there's one lender I know of that would consider um, doing a buy-to-let mortgage. Very vanilla. So it's clean cut, doesn't need any work doing to it. Um, and there's no provable income from that individual. However, in the background, there is a spouse, have to be married, um, who has income over 25,000 and their income to debt ratio is good. So they don't have huge amounts of credit in the background and they're a residential homeowner as well. Okay. So there is that. So they can take a view on it. Right. I think the, then, the, the key is here to be really careful, right? Yeah. So when people start talking about giving up their jobs, mm -hmm. there's a lot more to consider. Ah. And what about then? Is is it possible then? So I've heard mm -hmm. as a new investor on, on the circuit yeah. um, that I could bridge finance yeah. my first deal mm -hmm. in order to get experience. Yeah. And then, of course, at the end of the bridging, I'm hopefully I'll have tenants in. Mm -hmm. Can I then get a mortgage on the property and pay the bridging off? Would would it work that way? Is this the same person with no same income? person? Yeah. So same person, no yeah. income. Yeah. But I've got enough for the deposit for the bridge. Um, are the bridging company going to look at me more favourably, or is it the same rules? So with the bridging lender, it's they need to be seen to be lending responsibly. So what's the exit? Are you selling the property? No, I'm going to keep are you it. Refinancing. So if you're going to refinance in the bridging lender will be asking someone like myself, who's the exit lender? Show me who the exit does that. Right, so you've got to have an exit lender ready before you take your bridging. Yeah, I mean, okay. you, you just need, they need to understand like their criteria might change. So you might not meet that criteria, but they need to understand that there are lenders out there that um, 
you can go to to, re- to redeem their their loan. Like right. They want to build a, a good relationship with the borrower. Yeah. So they don't want to repossess the property. So they need to be okay. How do we get we get them into the deal? But how do we get them out of the deal mm. as well? So they need to understand that. Oh, there's so a lot of you, there's a lot of like you know noise about you know, what you can do, what you can't do. Now, one of the things, Joel, and this is probably the most asked question. I'm guessing because it is for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm another scenario now. Yeah. I'm on Facebook and I'm typing in on Facebook. Um, what I want to do is I want to buy a house in the middle of the town and it's a four bedroom mid-terrace property at the moment and I'm going to put a bed in the living room so I've got a five bed HMO and then I want to commercially finance it back out so I can make loads of money Yeah. so so I know that lots of people will relate to this so my question is you know commercial finance number one is it what everybody says it is Mm -hmm. number two how easy is it to get yeah so is it what everyone says it is? I hear so many people say so many different things about it. So I'd say no. In terms of if you're looking to convert a house, a terraced house into a five bed HMO and it's not in an area of Article 4 where they've moved the PD to, to, to be able to convert and you need to get planning. So if it's not in an area of Article 4 and it's just a five bed house and an investor can come along buy the one next door and basically do exactly the same for a fraction of flight fraction of the price why would um it be any more commercially viable than the house next door so it's more than likely going to achieve bricks and mortar um so what will will happen though which i do see a lot is the borrower believes that they're going to get a commercial vow on a five bed hmo they then go down the route with a commercial lender the lender gives them indicative terms based on their 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 what they believe it'll be worth. They then send a value out. The valuer says, "Yep, um, actually, this is the value, which turns out to be bricks and mortar." The client, the all the lender says is, "Okay, this is the value. We're happy to lend, but we'll give you seventy seventy five percent against that value." You spent two three months in this process already, and you go, "Yep, I'm happy to proceed." But what you're doing now is, you got a lower loan at bricks and mortar but you're paying commercial rates so where your typical kind of bricks and mortar lender might be three and a half percent 75 percent loans value you're now paying four mm-hmm. four and a half five percent so uh, don't believe the hype yeah it doesn't always work that way does it no. you know and again if you're in london i think very often your bricks and mortar would be yeah. more than the absolutely. commercial valuation like anyway. places like oxford as well yeah. so actually when you look at the yield based calculations bricks and mortar sometimes comes out on top yeah and we found that as well, certainly the area that we invest in. And for those that don't understand what we're talking about, you know, a little bit about commercial valuation. So each area will have um, a commercial yield, basically. It'll have a price that people are prepared to pay in the market. And if you get in touch with, if you can get in touch with a Rick surveyor or somebody that um, is in the commercial field, they'll tell you what that figure is. Um, and then that's the basis that they will value the property on on a commercial basis. Now, lots of people use the ten times the rent less twenty percent for the uh, for the utilities. It's not always the case, you know. Ten ten is maybe the average yeah. across the country, but in places like London, um, you know, you'll be getting probably four, four and a half, and places up north, you'll be getting thirteen or fourteen yeah. as a valuation. Um, and it's not people get confused that the lower the valuation, actually, the higher the price. Yeah. Rather than the other way around, but we'll do uh, we'll do another talk about that at some point in the future. Yeah, um, it just it gets a little bit confusing when people say, and I see it so much. You know, new investors want to buy a house, mm-hmm. turn it into a HMO, yeah. and then think they're going to get double what the price is worth. Yeah. because now the property is a HMO, mm-hmm. and and there's so much wrong with that. So don't believe the hype, folks. It's not always the case, and if you work on most of the time, Joel that it's a bricks and mortar valuation because mm-hmm. if it looks like a house and if it smells like a house. It's a house, yeah. you know, just because you put a mattress in the front room doesn't turn it into anything but a house. Yeah. All right. Awesome. So there's um, quite a sexy strategy out there right now. Um, I mean, it's been out for a while, but it's getting bigger and bigger, which is serviced accommodation. Yeah. And um, I know that it's becoming a little bit more regulated in London because yeah. of the 90 day rule. Yeah. Um, but other areas around the country, it's still pretty flexible. People are still doing it. And I'm kind of waiting to see, you know, when, when the products are going to start arriving for service accommodation or is it not something that the lenders are interested in at the moment? Um, so there's a lot more lenders now in the market space for service accommodation. Like oh, there are. Airbnb products we've seen, especially over the last 
18 months, okay. see more lenders come into the market. The issue that um, lenders pre- previously found was that um, a borrower would want to borrow, uh, have a loan against the projected SA figures and the lender would, wouldn't know how to value that So w- because there's no track record. So they they couldn't see when the void periods was. They couldn't see the real occupancy rate of of that. So yeah, you you this property might generate five thousand pound a month in SA, but over a twelve month period, what what is actually right. the net is going to be over that twelve months? So a lot of lenders moved away from that because they didn't see it as secure, boring. And you had commercial lenders in that space. So the commercial lenders would apply something called an EBITDA, which is basically a business calculation that works out what um, the max loan could be on on that but they want to see a track record so uh, and their rates are like four and a half five percent on that so what other lenders that where there was such a lot of talk about service combination it become more popular some of the mainstream lenders started coming into that space but what they said they'd do is okay you have no track record so we can't work off the the projected income but we can work off the single ast income so if you've got a, a two-bed flat in Liverpool that would rent for £600 a month, but actually on an SA it would rent for £1,500 a month, they'll, they'll work off the single ST to okay. give you the max loan. So you don't give them an AST, obviously, because it's service accommodation, but yes. they would work it out based on what it would achieve yes. as a single let. Yeah, so the value will go out and say, okay, this in this area, single let would be um, £600 a month. And they go, okay, you, you, it's worth 150. We'll give you 75% against that. 70%, okay. But it, it only downfalls when, say, if you're buying a block of flats yep. and you think, and it's like the, the valuation is quite high and you need that kind of projected value to get that additional income, then you're looking right. at commercial lenders. So if it's very um, bricks and mortar, simple, you know, you've got a terraced house or you've got um, a, a one or two bed flats the 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 standard ast or standard rental income figure will work to get you a loan and basically all they're doing is saying we will allow you to run this on an airbnb service accommodation type basis we just don't know have no minimum term when the uh, tenant or the the, 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 the whoever's staying there needs to be there so you know if the buy to let lenders you're like six months minimum term, 12 mm-hmm. months minimum term so what happens then Again, these are all you know yeah. scenarios and yeah. i'm just kind of talking really from the experience of the questions that i get in my yeah. community so I've got a buy-to-let mortgage, mm-hmm. uh, hypothetically speaking, by the way, folks, okay, I'm not really doing this, yeah. and I, I'm going to use it as a service accommodation. I already own the property. I'm not going to tell my mortgage provider. Yeah. What are the repercussions? You know, you're in, you're in breach of your mortgage terms. So what could happen? So they could repossess the property. Could they really? Do they actually yeah. do that? And we hear a lot about that, don't we? You I know, mean, sort of, what, there's a couple of things we hear about, Joel. Mm. First of all, breach of mortgage terms, they can recall because they're recalling their book. Yeah. Uh, they can blacklist you. Yeah, as well. So we hear a lot of both of those. I mean, yeah. in reality, are they just going to put your rate up, or are they going to recall your mortgage? I mean, if they don't have an appetite for service accommodation, um, and they see it as high risk, then they're going to ask you to refinance or right. change the use. They give you the option to do that, would they? First, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they don't. They're a business at the end of the day, so they don't want to lose you. But it depends on the situation and severity and how long you've been doing it for. So you could have had, you could be doing a refinance with that lender. Uh, like a product transfer and they look at your bank accounts that your bank statements and see that you know the where the rental income is 500 pounds you've actually been getting two thousand pound it's been sporadic mm. like, what, what's going on here and how long has that been going on for so it's the so, same with the hmo really isn't it yeah so lots of people back in the day yeah they used to get mortgage express mortgages with bradford and bingley yeah um same day refinance mm. and buy to let mortgages and then trade them as HMOs. Uh, and of course now, because of the new licensing legislation for HMOs that came in in October last year, yeah. uh, there are more people being exposed mm-hmm. as operating HMOs yeah. uh, under buy to let yeah. mortgages. Mm-hmm. So um, are we seeing, I mean, I don't know in your experience, are we seeing any of the Mortgage Express um, customers getting recalled? Have you seen any? I've seen a lot of letters have you that 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 quite um what do they say you know they're just it's time to move on basically okay so they're giving the customers the opportunity to get out rather than saying we're pulling the rug yeah okay that's interesting we've got um what i'll go back to that point though where your first question was about uh having i want to leave my job i want to be full-time in property i want to do this as a business so if if people have that mentality 
and they want to be operating a successful property business and be known as a property property entrepreneur or serial landlord, then they want to be using the right products. And actually the market is listening to borrowers at the moment and there's a lot of providers out there. So if you look at your buy-to-let rates, 2%, you know, 2.5%, and that's why it's attractive, isn't it? For yeah. some people that just don't want to spend yeah. 3.75, 4% on a HMO product yeah. when they can get half of it and just don't tell the mortgage provider, yeah. which, you know, we've never been an advocate of. I know there are people out there that are still doing this, yeah. um, but it's just not the right yeah. way to do it. And if you're going to build your business, as you say, Joel, you've got to do it with the right foundation. Absolutely. You've got to do it, you've got to do it properly. Yeah. And that's where you come in because um, me putting my novice investor hat back on. Yeah. So I'm saying to you, Joel, I've got this property now. My intention is, and I'm going to give you complete disclosure, mm-hmm. I want to rip it out back to brick, mm-hmm. turn it into a HMO, yeah. and of course want the best product. Yeah. So then you can go to market and get the right product that fits mm-hmm. that particular strategy. Yeah, absolutely. So will are there a lot of lenders that do like um, a bridge to let or a conversion type, you know, buy to let into HMO product? Yeah, so there's there's so many lenders in the marketplace that are offering various products to fit. So we always run a full fact find with the client and find out what they are looking to achieve, but also what's going on in the background. Are they a portfolio landlord? Do they have debts? You know, what income do they have? How old are they? You know, where are they living? Where's the property located? Are they buying in a limited company? Are they buying in sole names? How many people are in that limited company? Are there shareholders, directors, and that sort of thing? So we, we want to find out all the information so we can make a suitable recommendation, which helps them going to ultimately uh, fly through the mortgage process. But if you're buying a property and you're converting it into HMO, you're taking it back to brick, you're adding rooms, you're adding on suites, then effectively you can't buy that on a term product because it's not suitable. It's not a HMO yet. So the way to do it is buy it cash or buy short-term finance, otherwise known as bridging finance. And there's lenders out there that offer you bridging towards the purchase. There's lenders out there offer you bridging towards the purchase plus the work costs. If there is a, if there's enough uplift value in the in the at the end project. And then once the work's done, you can then refinance onto a term product. So there are yep. lenders that will do the bridge to term. Yep. And there is lend there are lenders that will do bridge just bridging and then you, you exit with a separate lender. Okay. So it depends. It's always important to have the end in mind, isn't it? Because if you Absolutely. are bridging, you've got to get that exit. Because if you can't get that exit, yeah. you're, you're pretty sneaky. What would happen, Joel, if, again, I'm putting my hat on, yeah, got yeah. a lot of scenarios. Got, yeah. I've only got two more for you. You'd be pleased yeah, to no, know. No, that's fine. But these are all real questions, yeah, you know. Absolutely. They do come from the community. Yeah. So um, if I do go into a, a bridge product and for some reason my exit that we agreed to with the bridge at the beginning pulls out what where does that leave me now what do i go yeah so if um if you're you find yourself in that situation and you really do need to be speaking to a broker who's got access to a number of lenders and and be in a situation so um what you could do is rebridge the bridge so which is very expensive Mm. and you probably don't want to be doing that and what you want to be do, you want to be looking at another exit. So if it was me, I'll be speaking to the borrower and saying, okay, how's the project going? You're on a nine month bridge. You said it was going to take five months to do the work. It's given us plenty of time of contingency and to refinance. How's it going? Yep, it's all going fine. Um, but this has changed in my in my background. So the lender that said that they would lend, either their criteria's changed or there's something's changed with the borrower. So I'll be telling the borrower, you know, don't don't take out more credit or you know, tell me if if anything's going to change like that. So there's a reason for that. We need to find out what that reason is. So we also need to be speaking to the bridging lender and let them know, look, we've got a situation here where the refinance, where we were looking to exit, that situation's changed. So yeah. can we ask for an extension? You know, you just mentioned something there, Joel, something that's really important. So a nine-month bridge, it is really important that you control your credit during that period yeah. because if somebody goes out and spends £100,000 on a car on yeah. HP yeah. during that term, yeah. that could be the, the, the tipping point where yeah. the exit lender is going to say no. Yeah. 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 Something that, that's, that a lot of people probably don't consider that. And when it comes to spending on credit cards as well, they're going to take it all into consideration, aren't they? Yeah. So bridging is basically asset back lending. So does the deal fundamentally stack up? So they're looking at the asset itself. You're buying it for X, you're spending Y, and then it's going to be worth this at the end of it. That makes sense common sense lending your, your term lenders who are going to be on that product with you for two years over a 25 year term they're going to be looking at your your bank statements your credit cards your income your expenditure mm. they're going to review all of that and if you don't tick them boxes then uh, they have the right to say no it's not the right fit for them because they 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 borrow money in from private funders or private institutions so they 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 
they were within a remit mm. of um, they work within a re remit of their funders behind them. So you kind of have to tick that. So it's really important that you understand who your exit lender is, but and and how you why you meet their criteria. Really. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So a couple of things then. So one's just an observation. I won't mention any names here. Yeah. And um, so I had a valuation. Yeah. Back in the day, and it was for uh, a reval on a property to yeah. pull our money back out, mm -hmm. and the valuer came out. And wasn't particularly pleasant with me, which made me not be particularly pleasant back to him. Probably a big mistake. Yeah. And he, <laughs> uh, I think I might have told you this story yeah. before. And he valued the property at zero yeah. for residential purposes, which was just nuts. Yeah. So we weren't we weren't that concerned. We didn't need the money right now. So we waited six months. Mm -hmm went back to the same lender, they sent out a different valuer yeah. and we pulled all of our money back out of that yeah. product. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of this is going to be very subjective to the person that comes out and values it on the day. Yeah. Is that fair? I mean, if you... I mean, we've gone from one guy that said the property's worth nothing yeah. in terms of rental purposes. Of course, it's always going to have a residual value. Yeah. And then the same company six months later, and they came out and valued it at something like 225000 you yeah. know, which gave us all of our cash out. It doesn't seem fair. And we didn't do a thing to the property, by yeah. the way. In the meantime, it yeah. was just the same. Yeah. I think valuers have got a lot of power. Yeah. And I think on this particular occasion, well, I know on this particular occasion, um, the guy was running late. He actually called me and mm -hmm. said, look, I'm running late. Can we cancel till tomorrow? Yeah. And I kind of said, look, I've been in there all day, mate. Mm -hmm. I waited for you. My time is money. And yeah. I... Probably shouldn't have spoken to him the way I did. Yeah. But then he took that and threw it right back at me. Yeah. Yeah. Which isn't, <laughs> which isn't fair. It's kind of a lesson learned. It but is. also, yeah. it, it, he, he should be working or they should be working within the the guidelines of the RICS. And can we challenge them, Joel? Can we go back and say, look, I don't agree with the valuation? Yeah. So we, in this market at the moment, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of caution flying around and we're seeing a lot of down valuations. And you can speak to a, a number of brokerages across the UK and they're saying similar things. And uh, so, when our investors say, look, I genuinely believe it's worth this and this is the reason why and I don't believe the value has taken this into consideration, then absolutely we can challenge. Does it do yeah. any good though? Or we does it fall on deaf ears? We're effectively telling the valuer they've done their job incorrectly yeah. and they don't like that and mm. they always fight back. There's been a couple of occasions when we've got them through. Um, the lenders all have the, the process, the um, you know the down valuation and, and you want to push back process and you, we go through that. And I will, I'll always go through it. If, it, if my client genuinely believes there's been a mistake made. Is it sometimes or, worth maybe just going to a different lender? So in other, yeah, it, what you want to do, you can go to another lender, but just make sure that you're not going to be using the same surveyor. Because I've seen that. <laughs> be embarrassing that, isn't it? Like you've gone yeah. to another lender, another application, the same <laughs> so guy. Goes, I was there like two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. 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 Or, or what we've seen before is the value doesn't even go and sends the same, like just redoes the report and does sends it, again. it, but gets paid on it. So we talk about reports. A lot of people are, uh, again, from the community saying, look, you know, uh, it's always great to get a valuation pack done yourself. Yeah. So as the vendor <laughs> um, that you can put together and you can do your own due diligence and, and, and look at the local comparables and, yeah. and all of that, does it make any difference? You know, are we yeah. effectively again yeah. saying to the valuer, look, this is how you should do your job? Yeah. Well, if that valuer turned up to, to, to yours that day and you were like, you know, here's a cup of tea, don't worry about being late, here's a valuation report. <laughs> Massage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's it. Uh, so <laughs> what, what we see of valuers is they may do two or three valuations a day. So over a period of week, it's quite a lot of valuations. Mm. And say... In out of them, say fifteen or so valuations they do, um, you give them a valuation report, and you say, "Look, I know you're not obligated to use this, but th here's some information based on the property when we bought it, what we've done to it, and what we're looking to do uh, once we tenant it. It might be useful. It's, it's up to you." Yeah. He then goes down the pub on a Friday. He then plays golf with his friends on a Saturday, and then on Sundays working for his reports ready for the Monday, and he comes across yours. It it can help. I've mm. seen it help. Yeah. But they're not obligated to use it. Yeah, as long as you're not cocky with it, right? Saying, look, you know what, yeah. well, I know what my house is worth and yeah. this is what I expect, yeah. etc. Yeah. Yeah. What I'd say, sorry to interrupt there, okay, um, is if you are looking to, so you found your, you've got your strategy, you're looking at HMOs and then you found your area you want to invest in and you, you're unsure about the commercial versus the residential or bricks and mortar, but you want to buy and you want to say you've got a target of 100 rooms in that area. It's not a bad idea to go and start building relationships with the surveyors in the area. Yeah. You know, just find How out do we do that? How do you find them? Contact them. You can look online, the commercial surveyors, you can speak to a brokerage, you know, what lenders Are they are they open just to having chats? Uh not they're not 
I've found it's all about the approach, how you speak to them. Some you will get who aren't really, you know, you know, they want to get paid for their time. Fair enough. You know what we need? We need to get a, we need to get a valuer from every one of the nominated lenders onto the show. Do you reckon we can yeah. work that? Do you my reckon they would do my that? My sister-in-law is a commercial surveyor, so maybe we should get does, on. Does she go out and do valves then, does She's she? She's done that, yeah. So we could, it. like, you know, from all the top players, Connells and everybody else, yeah. or maybe, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they'd be allowed to yeah. give away their trade secrets maybe. on a podcast. It's a, it's a good It'd be interesting. It'd be worth it. And it, having, you know, it from the other side, their, their yeah. viewpoint. Um, but yeah, building relationships with the surveyors in the areas, it, there are there will be some that are open to talking to you and you know what's your methodology i've got a mortgage application i just want to get them the numbers right and over a period of time persistence will, will prevail and Joel, you know when valuers come to a property they in my experience they always ask me how much i want that's the first question yeah so how much you're looking for yeah and i tell them and yeah. of course they write that down is that is it is it a daft question i mean they're going to go off out and value it anyway so what difference does it make because i could tell them anything i think um it helps build rapport. It also it gives them an understanding of of where you're at with it. Because they never give me what I want. Yeah, yeah. It's never anywhere <laughs> near it. Well, million. sometimes it is. But. Yeah, no, I found that as well, to be honest. But um, I think you have values that come in from other areas, mm. and they're just trying to get a gauge of right. it. But yeah, they they ultimately go off their own their own research mm. and and reportings. But okay. so I mean, do you want to not answer it and then? Just say, well, make yeah, me an offer. Yeah, make me yeah, an offer it's, yeah. it's going back to like yeah. dealing with direct vendor. Yeah, How yeah. much are you looking for? How much are you going to offer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll are leave that up to you. Yeah, yeah it starts yeah. going along those lines. Yeah. So my last what if type question yeah. for you is um, I've got my invested novice hat on again. Yeah. And I'm with my mate Dave down the pub. Yeah. And he says that his mate just bought a house yeah. without using any of his own money. He actually borrowed the deposit from his mum and dad. And he's managed to go out and buy this house. And now he's trading it as a HMO. So... I would like to, um, I've met an investor mm -hmm. from a networking meeting yeah. and they've said they're going to give me a hundred thousand pounds. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they've already given it me. It's in my bank. Yeah. So I've now got a deposit for a house and enough for a refurb. Yeah. Can I use that? So I, I guess as a responsible borrower, you need to be doing your due diligence on, on who you're borrowing your money from and where that money's come from. And you can do that. For I can home. tell you that it's come from Dave from the pub. Yeah. I mean, as in Dave, where did Dave get his money from? Which obviously your solicitors. Oh, I don't know. He, he does a lot of like, you know, sort of, he works out the back of a van. Yeah. Okay. Dodgy Dave. Dodgy. <laughs> okay. Do you know him? <laughs> There's a few. He's from Cardiff. <laughs> There's a few. Um, so uh, from a lender's point of view, there are lenders that are, who understand JVs yeah. and they are comfortable with it as long as um they the solicitors can say where it's come from and they want to see the loan agreements in place if you okay can, so it's got to be something to back up that money yeah so, yeah so you he might have a charge on another property like an rx1 yeah. on a buy to let you've got it's almost like a second charge you've done it um or there's loan group so you, you, your short-term bridging lenders understand it and they want to do their money anti-money laundering checks make sure that it's, it all stacks up your term lenders commercially will understand it however the majority of lenders will not allow you to do it because you've effectively got no skin in the game yeah. you're they see their uh security which is the property they're lending their money against at risk so what you're saying is that they can do it but the likelihood is they probably won't uh so there's lenders that categorically will not do right. it are those your main lenders your like main, you know your, your, your camp reliance yeah. alliance you know your high street kind of your right um, your, your vanilla buy to let and hmos your commercially uh, minded lenders challenger banks can take a view on it but it's all depends how it depends how it's structured right it really depends how it's structured okay the, the way to do it i know is people have done it in the past and i know people that have done it the right way yeah um and what they've done is they've taken equity out of another property yeah or, or their parents have taken equity out of theirs and lent it yeah, yeah. but it's backed on a loan agreement loan and a charge, charge yeah. an rx1 form can be yeah. completed and it's a second charge that's secure so it's almost like a refinance of yeah. a property and using that money to move forward yeah. or if you use a if you use like a bridging lender so you've bridged the purchase and mm. you've used their money the bridging lender can get comfortable with it they'll do their own due diligence and checks on the borrower right. and back on like we've had a recently we've had a, a, a gentleman buying a hmo he's borrowed money from an investor and that investor borrowed his money from four other investors mm. and the lender was like what is going on so and that, then that it, almost 
sparks money laundering, doesn't it? Yeah. So yeah. They, they they went out and done their due diligence and checks, and and it all turned out to be legit, and they structured it the right legals and uh, right. got comfortable. But it took a long time. But um, so what the, if you know big companies, big businesses have got loads of cash turnover? So big landlords, mm-hmm. maybe they're turning over seventy, eighty, ninety thousand pounds a month. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot going through the bank. They could almost hide a deposit within that turnover, so they could borrow a deposit from somebody, yeah. but still use proof of funds because of the amount of cash that's going through the bank. Yeah, is is, is that okay? Depends on your solicitors that you're using. Like your solicitors uh, will basically be confirming to the lender that they are comfortable where the money's come from. Right. So if a company is dressing it up and aren't being transparent and that's unethical, and um, the right solicitor probably would would say, look, that's this is where the money's actually come from and you, you get declined on lending. Right. But so that, you know, there's loads of ways you can dress money up and do it, but is it the right thing and depends who you're working with. So Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? It's always, it will always come out in the wash at some point. Yeah, yeah. So what I say to um, everyone that comes onto our programs, yeah. Joel, is look, just be honest from the beginning because yeah. you may well get accepted. You might get your decision in principle. Yeah. You might even then get an offer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when it comes down to actually going ahead and completing mm-hmm. and all the special conditions come back yeah. um, and you can't complete those and you're already three parts way through the deal yeah. and then your your lender pulls out yeah. because you've not been completely transparent. Mm-hmm. So then you're going to be out of pocket yeah. and you've stopped the chain if the chain's involved in it and the estate agent is not going to be very happy with you either. So I think what we're saying everybody here is, look, you've got to do things the right way. Joel, thanks for answering all of those what ifs. Yeah. because But those are the real case you know, scenarios, yeah. people that are not sure and they think that they can manipulate the system mm-hmm. when in fact, you know what, you've got to do things properly. Yeah. And that's why you're there to advise them because there is pretty much a product for everything. And if there isn't, then there's bridging finance. Yeah. My last question to you. Okay. So again, investor hat on. Mm-hmm. Um, I've watched Homes Under the Hammer. Yeah. I absolutely love it. So I'm going to go out now and start my new property investing journey yeah. by going to auctions and I'm going to bid on an auction. And sometimes you've got to be blind because it's just the way it happens. Yeah. How can I... How can I get my finance ready mm-hmm. to go and bid at an auction with the knowledge that when that hammer goes down, I've actually got money to buy the house? Yeah. So they can speak to, uh, if you speak to someone like ourselves who've got a contact with auction finance companies, bridging lenders, short term lenders, development funders, then we will basically run a quick fat farm of yourself, tell us about the property, where is it located, what type of property is it, what are you going to be doing to the property. Um, what's it going to be worth once it's done up? What's the auction conditions? Some have a 14 day, 28 day, 56 day we're doing at the moment, exchange and completion. So that will have an impact on which lender we go to. Um, and then we can get your decision and principle from that lender. You can take How long it. does that take, Joel? So if it's a late entry, so my estate agent contacted me an hour ago. Yeah. The auction's on Thursday. So I've yeah. only got really like two or three days. I've got a client buying a property. Um, it's a 56 day auction. Um, exchange and completion and he had his uh, offer accepted uh, last week he's called me this morning on a drive up here and I had terms by the time I got here awesome him. when so you say terms so what does that mean for the people so that he, had a, he had a decision in principle right okay um, I, it was all and is it you know, when he gets to a, a decision in principle um, what sort of percentage will actually go over the line you know because it's not 100% is it on a decision mm. I mean because because they've still got to go through the whole application process so um with our so if we're looking at bridging the lenders we work with well we'll do our own due diligence on the on the site or the the project um then our lender will do their due diligence as well um if you're buying at auction you need to do read the legal pack first so that's it auction that's where it could fall down if you if you, you find something that's like you know there's a title on the charge or there's a restricted covenant like you're going to be doing it as a HMO, but you're not allowed to do it as a HMO, that, that, that can cause problems. Yeah. So you need to do your own research on it as an investor. Um, nine times out of 10, our bridging deals will go ahead if the offer's been accepted because right. of the amount of work that's done in the background. So we got a quick decision. It's pretty much. A decision in principle is almost a given that you're going to get the lending. With uh, the, the bridging development, yeah, yeah. It's, it's always subject to valuation. You know, yeah. it's always subject to value. There's always stuff so, that can go wrong at the last minute, isn't there? With yeah. all of this, with all of the lending, yeah. you know, yeah. there's always something. Um, we completed on a deal oh, two days ago, I can't remember, three yeah. days ago. Yeah. Um, and little things just kept coming back. And it's so frustrating sometimes when you think, you know what, that should have been done yeah. right back at the beginning. But it's not the broker's fault. Yeah. Very often, 
all of this is down to the legal team, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, when they should have like worked out that the signature doesn't match that signature or, yeah. you know, the, the title is actually not the same title as what's on land registry. Yeah. And I think it's really important when you, if you're new to investing, getting the right team in place. Yeah. So brokers and have access to your, your regulated, unregulated market. Also your solicitors who specialize in, in property. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a firm in, in Cardiff that specialize, they have a buy to let team, a commercial team, and they, that's all they do. So they, they get it inside out. And then also, you know, your accountant who understands property as well. Yeah. So you've got a real uh, a pool of knowledge around you. So when a deal comes in, they've all seen it a hundred times before yeah. and they can educate you and talk you through that process. I think that, um, what, uh, borrowers sometimes do or buyers, They'll, they'll see a property, they'll make an offer, it gets accepted. The estate agent says, okay, we can't take this off the market until you give us your solicitor details. Instruct the solicitor, do you want to use ours? Or now I've got my own. They instruct the solicitor, they pay some legal fees, and then they go, oh, I better go and get the finance. Speak to the broker. Okay, the broker does a fact find. This is the suitable lender for yourself. Brilliant. I've got my finance and I've got my solicitor. Oh, wait a minute. The solicitor isn't on the on the no lender's problem. panel yeah. and they have to, they've started the searches. So, you know, they have to then change solicitors. So it's really important if you're borrower, if you're looking at property at the moment or you've had an offer accepted, make sure you get finance sorted. Ask the broker or your lender, who's your solicitors, who's on panel, can I use my solicitor? And that's going to save you time and money. Quick quarry, Joel, very quick, because we are an hour in, would you believe? Yeah, I could sit quick. here talking all day. Yeah. It has gone quick. So talk about rates. Yeah. So what, um, so currently, so we are now sitting in December, 2019, yes. just in case anyone's watching this in the future. Yeah. Um, what current rates are we looking at at the moment? Firstly for buy to let. Yeah. So buy to let, if you're buying in a limited company at the moment, um, 75%, two year fixed, you're looking at around two, most around 2.99. There is a specialist rate at the moment, about 2.59. What's uh, special about it? Well, I know it's obviously special because uh, so of the rate, but it's, is that fixed? Yeah, it's fixed for two years. Yeah. So uh, most the cheapest other than that is 2.9. And do you think fixing is a good idea right now with Brexit and everything that's happening? I think it depends on your appetite. Right. To, 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 you know, if you like fixed payments and knowing the security of what you have to pay and budget for each month, then yep, fixed is, is right. I think five-year fixed are, uh, are very competitive at the moment. Mm. So I think if you are unsure what's going to happen in the market and you don't have any plans to sell the property within a five-year period, then five years, you, the difference might be £20, £10 yeah. on the five-year fix versus a two-year fix. And what you've got to bear in mind, if at a two-year, after two years, you're either doing a product transfer or you're refinancing, you've got additional broker fees, additional solicitor fees, you might have product transfer fees. So it might actually be more cost-effective to hold on for the five-year and a lot of people get put off with that because they don't know what they want to do with the property moving forwards. But you know what I say to that? Pay your ERCs, yeah. you know, and just move on, you know, because yeah, yeah, yeah. they're going to... The, the, the mortgage companies are going to charge you either way. Yeah. You know, you're either going to pay more up front or more on an ERC if you need to get out of it. Yeah. So um, I wouldn't let that put me off. Um, no. I think five-year fix is great at the moment. So buy to that, you've covered HMOs. What's what's the best products right at the moment? Yeah, so you've got uh, Paragon, Precise, uh, Kent Reliance, kind of your mainstream lenders. If you're looking at letting the property, if you're looking at letting the property, say it's a five-bed HMO and you're let, letting them out individually, so you have single ASTs for each room, then you're looking at around three, three and a half percent of them yep. lenders. If you're looking at commercial, you know, seven beds, there's like there's a product at the moment, it's four point five nine. Um, if you're looking at like a student let, it's a four bed, then you've got rates that are like two, two point eight, three percent. But that, that's like sole name, mm. single AST, four rooms. Yeah, when you that, say sole name, you mean individual. Individual. And name. it's probably not the way forward, is it? Yeah, I think ninety five percent of our applications are through limited companies, yeah. like SPVs. And we're looking own. at PGs. Yeah, personal guarantees. So on, on, on all your limited company loans? Yeah, so yep. they, a lot of the lenders have moved the floating charge. Like that used to be a, a thing. But then you mean you on the debenture on the company? Yeah, yeah, yeah debenture. Yeah. So it's now your, your personal guarantees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. awesome. Joel, we're at an hour in. Yeah. Um, you know, what we like to do with these podcasts is keep them to those 25-minute treadmill sessions. Yeah, yeah. So maybe people can listen to this over in two a, days. In and out. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could sit here and talk to you for another hour, but, yeah. you know, we do have to cap it. Right. So um, loads of information there, and I think yeah. all the listeners and the watchers on the YouTube YouTube channel will yeah. agree sure. so how can people contact you so you know you've just given us a wealth of knowledge in an hour people yeah. are going to want to call you yeah. off the back of this interview Thank and you. i suggest everybody that you do joel does work with us he is a preferred partner within our property community group so we do recommend um how can they do that yes yeah, so they can contact me on my email address so it's joel j-o-e-l dot white w-h-i-t at ramsey and white.com that's ramsey r-a-m-s-a-y 
amdwhite.com so joel.white at ramseyandwhite.com and you can reach us on the website ramseyandwhite.com and or you can get us on the office number 02921 111280 awesome joel on behalf of everyone that's listening and watching i want to thank you it's been an awesome interview thank you rick it's been a pleasure no problem and folks that's it for today's show and of course if you need to contact me you can reach out to me in my facebook group which is the hmo and property community group or you can reach out to me on my page, which is Rick Gannon UK. Until the next show, folks, take care. Have a good one.